waiting for a train. Where is that train taking you? Far, far away. It doesn't matter where it's taking you though, because you're here with myself, Cameron James, and Alexi Toliopoulos, and toot toot, all aboard, we're heading towards Dream Station, aka the movie Inception. Wow, Conductor Sandman, <laughs> it is beautiful you to bring me a dream on this day on Total Reboot. You're listening to Total Reboot, the only podcast on the internet about movies and today, especially about heist movies. We're in the middle mm. of our heist movie mini series where we're talking about getting the gang back together for one last job. So far, I would say. We've been largely trafficking in, you know, standard heists, you know. Mm. Even though there's been a little deconstruction last week, it's still dealing with cracking open a bloody safe and pulling Mm -hmm. some stuff out of it. (laughs) Yeah, crack the safe and whack whatever's in there right back in your pocket. Yeah, and then skedaddle out of that room quick smart. But today... Absolutely. We are talking about the most skedaddliest miniseries possible, the most skedaddliest genre in all of cinema, heist movies. But today, Alexi, we're kind of talking about something a little bit different, a little bit wacky. This ain't your granddaddy's heist movie. This is a heist (laughs) movie for the new generation. Yes, this is the first millennial heist movie, I'd say. And also, it's almost like we're dipping back into Millennium Mindfuck. A little bit, yeah. This is uh, this is very within our wheelhouse because this movie is freaky, deaky, and trippy. Mm-hmm, it is. It's a little bit, would you say, uh, Doctor Strange, if you will. Yeah, that, Doctor Strange is an understatement. Doctor Unusual, I would say. <laughs> Doctor Weird. (laughs) Doctor Extremely Weird, okay? The guy's a freak. (laughs) We're talking about Inception, uh, you know, created by one of the most fucked up minds on this planet, (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Christopher Nolan. Oh, the guy's uh, a freak, dude. This movie, maybe, when I first saw it, I never would have even pieced that it is a heist film. Mm, it was a bit of a eureka moment for us when we were putting together the heist miniseries. And I believe I floated to you the idea of Inception. And then you were immediately like, that's one of the three that we have to do now. Yeah, because it's, I, you know, I, I know that on paper it is, but I just never put it in that category. I just, I'm more associated with like the Millennium Mindfuck style thing where this is a film about a, a crazy high concept. And. Mm incredible state-of-the-art special effects but uh, <laughs> but i never really put it in the i never know what genre to put it in other than i guess like action like yeah, dr- dramatic action, sci-fi, action sci-fi. Kind of. but you're right it's a fucking it's a heist flick although as i mentioned earlier this is a little different to the other ones because this is not so much about taking something as it is yeah. about leaving something behind Mm-hmm, absolutely. That, that's what's interesting about this one. We've been looking at movies where it's been an attempt of a theft, an attempt of a robbery. Mm. I guess in the grand scheme, the robbery is to be put in place by Saito, Ken Watanabe's character, trying to steal away business away from his rivals out there that are based on the Murdochs. I know, I know. I love a Murdoch sci-fi. Actually, you know what? Sam Campbell suggested to us that we do a miniseries about um, all the Murdoch stand-ins that have been <laughs> in cinema. Oh, <laughs> like, that would be good. Like Jonathan Price in Tomorrow Never Dies. Yes, and um, what's his name in uh, Anchorman 2, the Australian actor? Josh oh, Lawson. Josh Lawson. <laughs> Josh Lawson. <laughs> Famously a guy we've emailed once. Yeah, once you go looking for it, you notice Murdoch stand-ins everywhere. And it's yeah. it's almost crazy that they weren't doing Australian accents in this movie. Well, okay, this is something I read while doing research for this episode. Before we get into it, mm. it was something I was going to ask you. Was I read like an IMD factoid on the IMDb trivia where I was like, this movie's interesting because there's people that are representative of every continent, continent on mm. there. Of course, Ken Watanabe, 
represents Asia and Japan. Then you've got um, Tom Hardy, who represents Africa because his character's like in Mombasa or something. Sure. Then it goes from <laughs> America, we've got Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character and, of course, Leonardo DiCaprio and Marion Cotillard. I'm like, okay, she's meant to be American in this movie? Surely not. She's, <laughs> she's fucking French. I think she's meant to be American and I've never put that together before. And then it said, and of course, Cillian Murphy, who represents Australia as his character's Australian. I and I was like blown away going, none of these people are doing the right <laughs> accent. That's what they're picking up on. I don't know about that. I know that there is an Australian in the office, um, in the in the fake Murdoch office. One of the yeah. guys that's sitting, uh, you know, amongst Tom Hardy and all the others is like, Excuse me, sir, I think that's a bad idea. And does this <laughs> shitty Australian accent. You call that an idea? This is an idea. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think Cillian Murphy is. Um, very excited to talk about this movie because, I'll be honest with you, when I first saw this flick in the cinemas on the silver screen, I was left feeling very, very cold <gasps> and not into it. Do you want to hear my big reveal, Cameron? Yes. When I saw this film on the silver screen, I was left feeling cold and not into it. Wow. Wow. Now, this is interesting because this came after Batman Begins, right? Pre, pre Dark Knight. And Dark Knight. Pre- and after Dark Knight. After Dark Knight, pre Dark Knight Rises. So yes. this is a real hot moment for for Nolan and also probably a very hot Nolan hot Nolan moment in your mind and in your mm. timeline because you were a big Dark Knight guy. I was a huge Dark Knight guy. That was one of my nicknames around the internet at that time. Huge, huge Dark, Dark Knight, Knight guy. guy. <laughs> com. And I went to film school just after this movie came out. <laughs> And it was... I bet a lot of people did. (laughs) Yes. It actually was one of my great nightmares of my life that stuck with me. was going to film school immediately after Inception came out. And it coming up in every single lecture. People always putting up their hand where they'll be like, well, of course, the lecture will be like, well, of course, actually, this is the structure the film takes. Narrative structure. We must go about this. And always someone put up their hand wearing a leather trench coat going, well, actually, what about Inception? That actually uses quite a different technique as far as storytelling goes where it's quite a complicated structure and it's like shut up I'm sick of hearing about this movie (laughs) and even though I was left feeling cold by it I still was impressed by it yeah but um I think just I've had a negative relationship with this movie because of its impact on film bro culture yeah Uh, hugely its impact on film bro culture upset me I would say yeah, I mean, well, the Millennium Mindfuck stuff that we talked about that kind of sits around 2000 or, you know, I think we said kind of 1999 to 2002, that was a huge impact. This was, what what year was this, 2010 or something like that? 2010, yeah. So this is the a, same year they made Contact. Not yeah, Not yeah. Contact, but in fact, Contact. Contact with 2010, aliens. the year they made Contact. They talked to aliens in the year 2010 in the movie uh, sequel to 2001, A Space Odyssey. 2010, yeah. the year they made Contact. And 2001... A Space Odyssey didn't come out in the year 2001. It actually no. came out in, I believe, 1968. Yeah, and you're getting confused. When you're thinking about movies that came out in 2001, you're thinking of stuff like Ghost World. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's set on Earth at the same time that 2001 Space Odyssey is <laughs> set in space. That's the interesting thing about every movie that came out in 2001. You can look at it and yeah. go, can you believe that space travel was happening at the same time as this shit was going on. At the same time as, like, Jim and his buddies were going to the lake for uh, America Pie 2. <laughs> yeah. We were, we were... Hal was, like, up there in space attacking Dave. Same yeah, year. Yeah, there was a giant baby floating around the universe. <laughs> same year. That's a, that's what I love about American Pie, when, like, that little paper boy chucks that freaking paper at the lake house, it mm. dings on the doorbell, you see Jim who's just recovering from penal, penal torture that he's put up on himself, mm. open up the paper, you see on the front page, giant baby floats in space. Yep, and then on the next page, local boy super glues penis to hand <laughs> in sexual mishap. On page seven, local MILF returns to lake, people excited. <laughs> 
But uh, what the fuck were we talking about? Oh, yeah. So we both were left feeling a little cold by this. That's interesting. I mm. I think that, uh, yeah, 10 years after the original Millennium Mindfuck uh, introduced a whole new generation of film bros, this one did the exact same thing again and possibly even more annoying because this movie is fucking complicated. I, mm. I, I can watch it now, a decade and change later, and still say this is a pretty complicated, um, like, constructed film for even your most, you know, cinema literate people like us. So Mm. imagine 19-year-old fucking film student losers who feel like they get it. They they must have been unbearable. And that was probably, like, uh, us. (laughs) Absolutely. And I I think part of my my, uh, difficulty with it back then... Was, you know, I loved The Matrix. I loved the Millennium Mindfuck movies. Um, I also went through my phase of not liking them around that time mm. as well. And I think that because Nolan himself talked about, you know, this movie being a bit of a throwback to that era, he specifically called out stuff like The Matrix, The 13th Floor. He even lumped his own film Memento in that batch when he was talking about how he saw this movie I never really saw this movie beyond the spectacle and beyond the dream setting. And I think because those movies are so philosophical for me, like The Matrix is a cool action movie, but for me, it's always been a movie that kind of introduced me to philosophy, I would say. Mm. Because this movie, I don't think is quite philosophical. It's almost like a logical look at surrealism. And I think that's both this film's greatest strength. And at that time for me, it was like, it's it's the thing that stopped me from really connecting with it. I've always thought it's a very good movie, but I never connected with it in a kind of an emotional capacity. No, I mean but either. I think revisiting it last night, Cam, especially with going in thinking of it as a heist movie instead of like a mind fuck movie, mm. I kind of unlocked a lot of the joy for this movie and a lot of stuff to get excited about with this movie. And I think it's the most I've ever truly enjoyed Inception was watching it last night on a very low volume setting on my TV. (laughs) That's interesting. I I had a similar journey. After leaving the cinema in 2010 and not really enjoying this flick, um, the main images that I took away with me for the next 12 years were the spinning top, um, which I hated. And I kind of hate Nolan's obsession with um, old-timey toys and shit like that. Like, he's the kind of guy that would love a little carousel or... A, yeah. Um, one a of tin those, toy. Yeah, he loves tin, 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 tin wind-up toys. A tin wind-up toy. One of those fucking things that you put a candle in the middle of and then you spin a wheel around it and it, like, projects mm. shadows or some shit on your wall. Oh, God. To him, that's the first movie. He would love all that <laughs> shit. I hate it. I hate that sort of imagery. Like, I'm taking an, an innocent image and I'm imbuing it with deeper philosophical meaning. And I also, the main image that I've carried with me for 12 years is the literal, um, like, infinite loop staircase thing that mm. Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Elliot Page walk around. Um I hated that in the moment. I remember thinking, how fucking dare you turn a surrealist painting into like just a boring bit of exposition about how you can do anything mm. in this in this dreamscape. And then you never really show us anything else like that again. Boring. I was bored shitless. But okay, I, I will confess, I watched this movie this morning mm-hmm. on my iPhone on a plane on the way to Brisbane. Wow. Cillian Murphy style. Yeah, red eye style, baby. And uh <laughs> <laughs> He's in a lot of plane movies actually now that I think about it. And uh and this That's was- what's interesting. You kind of did Inception the way Inception's done. It's mainly set on a plane. I know. I actually took off at the exact moment that that private jet takes off and it was a surreal... I thought I was in my own dream for a second. Far out. That's lived-in cinema. Method reviewing you're doing right there. But I will say, this was the most I've enjoyed the movie Inception and especially watching it from the perspective of I'm essentially watching a heist flick 
Mm-hmm. It was the you're most... the one guy that's awake on the plane, and you're watching yeah. everyone else having a sleep and a snooze. It was the most fun viewing of it that I've ever had, and it was the most compelling that I've found the story. Truly, that's the same for me. I think just going in thinking it's a heist movie helped so much, and genuinely, Cam, we'll get into this. But, you know, it's something we've talked about with Nolan a lot in the past is some of his his tropes that have been problematic for me as a viewer that have kind of kept me at arm's length was like his way of handling emotions and his reliance on like tragic romances and tragic yeah. relationships. Yeah. I think because I can never get that out of my head whenever I watch a Nolan movie, having that in mind this time also unlocked different aspects of the movie for me and it allowed me to actually have an emotional connection to the movie that I've never anticipated having before. Well, I'll tell you, it's it's different experience watching this movie as a married person now too compared to the last time I watched it when I would have been just dating or something. Um, and yeah, that I definitely was more connected to the emotional story of it. I'm sure we'll get into this at some point during this chat, but I just want to say one word and leave it hanging out there. Ouroboros. Wow. You've incepted me. Yeah. You've incepted me right now, dudes. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll think about that word. And uh, you and I both hate that Ouroboros shit for the most part. Um, And Mm -hmm. yeah, there's a reason. But anyway, Nolan loves it. So I think we should dive into this movie. Let's do it. Let's spin the top and spin the disc. We're into Inception. What's the most resilient parasite? An idea. A single idea from the human mind can build cities. An idea can transform the world and rewrite all the rules. Which is why I have to steal it. We're joining each other in my favorite segment on this podcast. Mm. It's a little segment that I personally love to call Love That Logline. You have gone out there into the wickedly wild web and found a synopsis, a summary for the movie Inception from the year 2010, directed by Christopher Nolan, who, might I say, at the time has Ralph Cifaretto hair. Yeah. Yeah, he has that Ralphie Cifaretto haircut. It's based on his head. He's got the Ralphies, the Ralphie do, <laughs> Ralphie do's and Ralphie don'ts. <laughs> and you found a synopsis for the film. Let us know what it is, Ben. This is from IMDb slash title slash Inception slash plot summary. Wow. There's a, a lot of people have submitted their own plot summaries here, and many. How many them- are there? I can imagine there actually would be heaps for this movie. <laughs> I stopped scrolling at a certain point, but I never reached the bottom of the page. <laughs> That's some, crazy. Some of them are full on essays. Like there's, a, I swear to God, a screenplay in here. Like someone's just <laughs> rewritten the film, and they've also credited all the actors. Um, oh my <laughs> like, lord! Like they've credited uh, the actors that play the kids and stuff like that. That's crazy <laughs> to put in brackets like Philippa or whatever the child's yeah, name is. Philip is Philippa and James are both credited in one of these person's essays. <laughs> so anyway, I've found a shorter one uh, that sits just above it, and I'll read it for you right now. Mr. Cobb is a unique con artist and a thief with the rare ability to enter people's dreams and steal their secrets from their subconscious. His skill has made him a hot commodity in the world of corporate espionage, but has also cost him everything he loves. Mr. Cobb gets a chance at redemption when he is offered a seemingly impossible task. Plant an idea in someone's mind. If he succeeds, it will be the perfect crime. But a dangerous enemy anticipates Cobb's every move. Um, I didn't know there was a dangerous enemy in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there is, really. I think that's um, a little artistic license there from this uh, writer to say, but not everything's going to go smoothly. Because mm. the dangerous enemy, I would say, is nothing. <laughs> it's, just, yeah. it's just the uh, subconscious... People that populate Cillian Murphy's brain. Yeah, there's some conscious mercenaries that he's got hired up in his head. And I guess Interpol. There's Interpol in this movie. Oh, God. I love it when they say Interpol in a movie. (laughs) 
Yeah, me too. Me too. Um, the, I believe ACAB except for Interpol. <laughs> fictionalized Interpol at that. Yeah, fictionalized Interpol in like an espionage flick. I'm all about mm-hmm. it. Yeah, I love hearing those French fire engines and sirens going off. Yes. That's if what I, I associate with Interpol is that. Yeah, if I hear a, a siren engine that sound or like a cop car go past, it's like. <laughs> and then I hear a Moby song kick in. I'm in a very good place. Yeah, so we've got to talk about the board identity one thing on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but Cam, yeah. you said you had a more emotional connection with this film. What mm-hmm. do you mean by that this time? Well, I just think, um, for the most part, I've always viewed the relationship between um, Marion Cotillard and Leo as purely a plot contrivance every time Mm. I've seen this film. And we've talked about that as an issue of Nolan's, for the most part anyway, that usually his male characters have like a um, dead wife or something like that in the background that serves the only purpose is to make him haunted and troubled or whatever. But this time around, I found myself moved by the third act reveal, I guess, that um, they had lived a very long time together, even though it's mm. really uh, stupid and, and hour confusing. Sleep. Yeah, <laughs> an 11-hour sleep together, which lasted 50 years in their subconscious or whatever the fuck. It's... Um, it's I think that's quite sweet, the idea of growing old with someone and then accepting that that was your mm. time together. I don't know. I, I was a bit moved by it because I could understand the... the. I guess I could understand his motivations more of like, well, I want to wake up and I've got to get back to my real kids. Mm. <laughs> and, but I don't know. I, I think I, I found it a bit more moving this time around than I ever have in the past. I'm right there with you. I think the kind of key word, your key word being Ouroboros, my key word for this rewatch would be catharsis. Mm -hmm. You know, in the past, we talk about that dead wife stuff with Christopher Nolan. It's so hard for me to go to these movies clean without that in mind. And I actually think having it in mind so much really helped me kind of see this movie totally differently. I feel like this was his first movie that actually is an attempt at making a film about a tragic relationship rather than one that just features a tragic mm. relationship to motivate characters. To me, it it became the spine of the movie at a certain point. Like, that is Cobb's entire emotional arc. And it felt... I felt very emotional during it this time. And I felt the actual emotional connection. And I think that having those layers of the inceptions go on, mm. it really connected with me this time of them wanting to spend this perfect dreamlike life together Mm. and then it's becoming a nightmare instead of a dream and the only way to get out was for him to incept her uh i found really tragic and moving and it just feels like the way that there is an actual understanding of how relationships work that i didn't anticipate and maybe it's something i never gave nolan enough credit for before i think um that that's a great point. And I, but the one thing I think that still keeps me at arm's length, maybe not arm's length, forearm's length. Yeah, it's um, a smaller length. My elbow is crooked, yeah. but my so it's close to my body, but I can still mm-hmm. push it away if I need to. It's um, almost like you're doing a Bruce Lee style one inch punch. Yeah, I'm one inch punching this flick away from me. Um, and I would say that. Nolan's aesthetics and aesthetic choices, mm-hmm. for example, to never reveal his children's faces and to only show them in the same poses, like from behind in multiple settings, that's a really cool visual motif. But it also is mm. quite literally withholding emotion from me. So yep. I don't particularly care about his relationship with his kids because. I've never even seen their fucking faces, you know? Mm. So I've never I haven't had a second to even connect with them or bond with them or see them smile at their own dad. So I don't really yeah. give a shit. And the same can be said for Marion Cotillard who we only see playing a psycho essentially in this film, and we understand it's a reflection of Cobb's guilt about what he did. Um it's not actually her. 
but it's mm. still one note that is pretty much rung for the entire movie with a couple of emotional, genuine moments throughout. But so I enjoy I enjoy it from his perspective, but I never feel fully embraced by the emotion of it because I never see I never see a real emotional moment from Marion Cotillard, unfortunately. Mm. I would say the other thing that kind of helped me unlock this movie was going in with it as a genre film in mind and the genre being heist films. That's the lens that we're looking at all of these movies under. And it made me kind of appreciate, I dare not say it, but I think I will, Nolan's genius. Because I think genre is something (laughs) that is so important (laughs) because it is the language in which audiences interpret and understand films and engage with films Mm -hmm. through the ideas of expectation, whether it be subverted or whether it be played to. And this film utilizes so many of the tropes of heist films. In particular, it utilizes exposition in the way a heist film utilizes exposition rather than a sci-fi film utilizes exposition. And to me, this film actually helped me understand heist films in general more. In the last couple of episodes, Cam, I've been talking about justice as being mm. a key factor for heist films. Uh, how you how we follow a protagonist, how we follow a group of protagonists, and it is about them being hard done by and then them finding justice through the objective of completing a heist and obtaining whatever it is. I think I'm going one step deeper. I think I know what word you're going to say, but I want to hear you say it. I'm incepting you right now. Mm -hmm. I'm going one level deeper into the dream. And I think what I mean by justice is my favorite word, catharsis. Interesting. Oh, that's okay. I was thinking something different, but that's okay. I think we're still on the same path together. What were you thinking? Redemption. I think in de- redemption and catharsis is the same thing because yep. it's about the emotional climax of something. Yeah, I think you're right. It's about, uh, and maybe so far, all those stories have really had that at their core. They're about someone who feels like they need to prove to themselves that they're a good person. <laughs> I think so. I think (laughs) it's about finding the value within oneself through an external journey. I mean, but when I see Inception, you know, it's not an accident. This movie is a film about catharsis. This movie is a film about a group of people coming together and literally bringing catharsis in someone's life. That is the Cillian Murphy character. Mm. And... What I found so interesting about this film, I've always thought of this film as Nolan's allegory for filmmaking. And there's lots been written about that, how, of course, uh, Cobb, the Leonardo DiCaprio character, is the Nolan stand-in. He even freaking looks like Christopher Nolan. He's got that yes, Ralphie do. He's got that Ralphie Cifaretto do in this movie. <laughs> and he's wearing the same kind of suits as Nolan does. Then we've got Elliot Page as the architect in this film. But they are basically a production designer. They're designing mm. the world that the film is taking place in. You've got Tom Hardy as Eames, who is the allegorical character for what an actor is. He's playing these roles. He's chameleonic. He's changing things. He's in control of what's going on inside the dreams and the interactions there. Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, whose name I will never learn. I just call him JGL every time. Hit record Joe. I think he's called Arthur. Arthur? Something like I'll call that. him Hit Record Joe. <laughs> but he is the producer. He's kind of the mover shaker. And then Sato, of course, played by Ken Watanabe, EP. is the studio. He's the EP. <laughs> and Cillian Murphy is the audience. And this whole movie is about constructing this world, working together, and then creating this sense of audience relationship, audience emotional catharsis with the Cillian Murphy character. And I think placing it as a heist film is such a brilliant decision for me. Hmm. I'd never heard that uh, connection between, you know, it being a sort of a film about filmmaking. I like it. I think that's something that would have been subconscious to use the parlance of this film. <laughs> I can't imagine Christopher Nolan sitting down and thinking, I want to make a movie about making movies and it will be Leo as me. I'm yeah. hot. He's hot. We're both going to be hot dudes who, who make <laughs> sick-ass movies. 
That you just reminded me of something I forgot about. <laughs> Around the time this movie came out, maybe a couple of years later, there was an article I read that I think would have been like Vanity Fair or something like sure, that. Sure, sure. Where it was talking about directors and their muses, like mm. the actors that they use. Huey Lewis to and the Muse. <laughs> That's one of the great cover bands. That you gotta start that. You gotta start that. But <laughs> that's you just play muse songs in the style of Huey Lewis. <laughs> that's actually a pretty good idea. <laughs> yeah, at least it should be a character in a movie sometimes. Yeah, See, yeah. That's his day job. All right. In a reboot of the Wedding Singer, that's what he's in. He's in Huey Lewis of the Muse. <laughs> Sorry, continue. But they were talking about like the directors and their muses. And it was like, yes, here's a side-by-side of Leo DiCaprio and, and Christopher Nolan. Don't they look the same? Isn't he just the more attractive version of Christopher Nolan? And then the next slide that I clicked was... Colin Firth in A Single Man. He's actually a less attractive version of Tom Ford. Famously a very hot man. Oh my god. Who wrote this article? A genius. I loved it. I've just, thought about it so often since I read it 10 years ago. Just ranking directors on their hotness. <laughs> um, well, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I like it. I think it's an interesting uh, subconscious little element mm. to the... F- and we know that he's like a film nerd, so it, it's easy to apply that kind of stuff to him. It's something he's talked about, Cam, where he's... Um, where he realised at a certain point, he was like, oh, it's a film about assembling a team together. I do that every day. Mm. And he kind of started putting it in that language for himself. Right, right, right. Um, wh- when you viewed it as a heist film this time around, how did all the heist tropes line up for you? Did you did you find that they were all there? So many of them were there. Mm. Of course, like, you know, the biggest heist trope is about assembling a team. Sure. That is par for the course here. It's about mm. assembling a team of experts, professionals. But so much of the structure hit me in the heist way this time, where we begin with, like, a plan that goes almost right at yeah. the start and things go a bit wrong. Mid-heist. Unlike- we begin mid-heist. We begin mid-heist in the action and that's not unlike something like the Italian job. That mm. feels so much like that, where we've got a heist that slightly goes wrong at the start, but then we have to find new members of the team throughout. That's kind of the structure for the first mm. act of this movie, is getting a team back together of experts. And everyone is like an elite professional. And that's what we love about mm. heist movies, is those professionals. We love seeing people that are good at what they do, and what they're good is being quite bad. And then... <laughs> The other thing that really hit me, all the exposition stuff, par for the course for heist films. Yeah. But the thing that I loved most that is such a trope of the heist movie is that there is an unexpected complication that changes everything. Everything is going according to plan. They've set up this world. And when we're in that heist inside Cillian Murphy's dreams... There is an unexpected complication that changes the rules of how this film works. When you die in a dream, you wake up in real life. Except this time, you fall into limbo, an unstructured dream space. And the way that was delivered and the way that lands in the movie at the point is so interesting to me viewing it as a heist movie. Because that's usually when... They've had their plan all set up, mm. yet there is some kind of secret alarm. There is something that they didn't anticipate. It's a special type of vault that only one guy has ever broken into in Germany and stuff like that. Something like that, where they're in the middle of the job and everything changes. Like, mm. there's a reason the cops can come after them now. Maybe someone's died, but mm. everything changes. And that felt so perfectly heisty for me. Yeah, I also... The exposition stuff, I remember when I first saw this, I didn't love it. I just found it too in love with explaining its own Mm. logic and science. And it never stops explaining itself. Never. All the way through to the end. We don't just see it set up at the start. Like you said, it goes all the way to the end. Or it goes for two hours. Like in the final minutes of this movie, they're still like, so we have to sync up these three kicks. And if we miss one of them, then we're stuck here. And you're like, fuck it. Are you still explaining shit to me? Fucking... But this time around, I did love it because I think I love it in heist movie where we see the plan get explained and how they're going to go about it. 
and that's often intercut with training montages or um, people doing little reckies to the location and all that shit. This does all of that, but there's the heightened stakes of they're also inside other people's brains and shit like that. I, I found all that really compelling. I found that it never bored me for a second. Like Pacing-wise, this is very, very exciting, propulsive film. Mm. Um, I will say that once we got to what I imagine is Nolan's, the meat of this fucking movie, like the final hour... Which, mm. is, which is all set inside the multiple levels of dreams, right? That, I mean, this is probably the part that he wanted, the reason he wanted to make the movie is so he could have this whole set piece where there's three timelines happening simultaneously mm. and they're all their own action set piece, uh, you know, from the van chase in the rain to the hallway chase in a fancy hotel, sorry, fight scene in a fancy hotel, to the James Bond Goldeneye, um, you mm-hmm. know, like snow fight. Yep. But something about it this time, it's all very exciting, but it really started to feel tedious, I think. Um, and I don't know whether it's because I just felt like I was watching mathematics on screen a little bit, um, uh, but I, I hit a point where I checked, <laughs> to be fair, I was watching it on my phone. Yeah, so I, there is a clock at all times checked, anyway, the corner. I looked up and saw the time on my phone, and, uh, and I thought, I can't believe there's 45 minutes left and that van is still falling from the fucking bridge. Mm. Oh, my God. This feels tedious. This, it's actually something I think I've gained more patience for with Nolan, is the idea of these parallel storylines playing in conjunction with each other to create tension. I think it's something that I have a lot more patience for now because I think that it's done so successfully here, whereas in something like Tenet, I think it is really weak and is like one of the reasons that movie doesn't work for me. But here, I would say my main criticism of that is I don't think there's a point where I ever truly care about what their mission is. Hmm. Because it feels so stakes-free and unclear as to why Ken Watanabe wants his rival business to uh, fold and to why the wheel and the state of this guy should be broken up. Um, I feel... It's something that I find something that's a bit quite difficult to care about. Maybe if we spent a little bit more time with the Cillian Murphy character to have a bond with him in some way. Maybe if there was a relationship built up in the real world before we get them all working together in the dream world. Something there. But to me, when those storylines all converge, when we go through all the multiple levels in the actual like emotional climax of the movie, I became completely engrossed for the first time when we've got that emotional build-up with Cillian Murphy and Pete Postlethwaite and Tom Hardy watching them, when we have that true catharsis moment that is the entire construction of this dream world is built around. And then we have those eyes opening up as each character goes between Mm. each level coming back out of the dream. And then they just all wake up kind of sleepy-eyed, tired on the plane. I really felt so engrossed and so on board with that. And to the point where I felt like, Mr. Nolan, what you've done here is create movie magic. Well, I think, yeah, that moment of them all waking up at the very end on the plane and looking around at each other in that sort of sleepy... It's like the sleepy answer to um, Spielberg's Eyes of Wonder that he's kind mm. of famous for. Yeah. I was like, that's, that is movie magic. That is a very special thing. It looks, it's a nice spin on like the joy you feel at the end of a heist movie. It's literally these people waking up feeling like they've just had an incredible sleep. <laughs> mm. um, I liked all that shit, but I did... Um, <laughs> Cillian Murphy's like, that was the most important sleep of my life. I figured out who I am. Yeah. I'm over my dad. I love him again. It's kind of a beautiful moment. Yeah, it is kind of nice. But, yeah, I just don't... I don't know why, but I just found... I think you've hit the nail on the head. Ken Watanabe's character, who, on paper, is a villain... 
in this movie. He's mm-hmm. just trying to like wipe another business out, like a, another corporate entity out, so that he can have the lion's share of the free market. Mm. Um, that's pretty sinister, and uh, <laughs> and uh, and also like fucking. Do we really even give a shit about any of that stuff? Do we really care about Cillian Murphy? Getting a cathartic moment with his father. He's uh, he's an expendable character. Mm. Like we're, I think we're supposed to care, and I think we're really supposed to care about Dominic's kids. And I yeah. I don't think I ever really care about any of them, mm. but I do find the visuals cool, and I find the propulsive energy of the editing very engaging. Mm. I think I only started to feel bored a little bit towards the end because I know what happens in this movie and it wasn't surprising, but, mm. and I kind of wanted it to hurry up and get to the point, but I, but yeah, I don't think I felt any, any emotions throughout. Maybe the the closest I got was the final sort of chat between Dom and uh, his wife where he lets her go. That was, that's the closest I got to like being emotionally engaged in the story, but for the most part. I've said this before, but Interstellar is and Dunkirk are the two that uh, that that really tap into emotion for me in the Nolan verse. Mm. I agree. I think those are the two that I like the most and have a deepest emotional connection to. I think as well something that I was stuck with that maybe it's like almost a solution to this. If we kind of understood what that business was, like if it was going. If the whole mission was we're actually breaking up the Murdochs because of the damage they're putting on the yeah. world, and you know they're they're, they're extremely far right um, news media that they put out into the world mm. and the disruption it causes, um, like if this was kind of part of like why we see those uh, that kind of riot building in Mombasa, sure, which sure. I think. I don't even remember if that's a dream or if that's, that's a, a reality. That is a dream, yeah. but that would be a really fun socio-political touch to this movie that I think the movie is lacking. Is mm. that it's not really saying anything about the world, or and it's also not a metaphor for anything truly emotional that we can all, um, that we can all like project ourselves onto. You know, it's just a bunch of cool ideas. And I think that's kind of where I get stuck with this movie because. It is a fantastic world, beautiful world building, incredible yeah. communication to the audience, mm. especially through that genre aspect. Uh, yet, to me, even though finding this huge emotional connection to the movie this time, finding the Mal and Dom Cobb. Dom Cobb, by the way, one of the great character names. Mm, yeah, Dom totally. Cobb. Uh, their emotion, <laughs> that being the emotional spine of the movie for this for me this time, and that being a really successful version of a tragic romance being explored, mm. it does feel a little hollow. It does feel a little bit philosophically bereft. This movie, yeah. where I don't feel like there is too much deep thought in there beyond the idea of subconscious, that kind of Freudian idea, and the idea that I find like actually quite inspired is the idea that your mind, your dream state, the way that your mind works while you're in a dream state is a filmmaker. Mm. And it is a brilliant filmmaker. That is an idea that I find interesting because it's something that is true for every person out there in the world. When they're asleep, their mind speaks in the language of cinema to them. That Mm. is how... The, that's how it works. Every piece of music is something that you've constructed. Every shot, every idea of perspective, your mind is writing, directing, and starring and scoring your dreams. And I found that to be quite interesting. Yet, I don't think that this movie, compared to a lot of other movies about dreams, which I prefer, I think what it lacks is imagination. Yeah. And... The surrealism of this movie is like what I've talked about in the past about American surrealism, which is translating very complex ideas into a visual metaphor that is easily digestible and mm. great 
way to communicate to an audience. I think it's successful there. But I think Christopher Nolan's version of that is so uninspired for me. Like it is just like modern day architecture meeting older architecture. And I like all the different levels of architecture that we see kind of deteriorating in the abstract place of the limbo. And I do like the way that the that uh, Elliot Page opens up the dream world as they begin to mm. understand how they can construct the architecture of that world. But it is very kind of cold. Yeah. Whereas a lot of the dream movies that I'm interested in is like, you know, Bunuel, Louis Bunuel, like Unshen Andalou. Yeah. Of course, uh, Richard Linklater's work yeah. with uh, Waking, Waking Life. Life. Yeah. And then, you know, Paprika and stuff where they're truly like building all this imaginative stuff that is using the surrealism of dreams where truly anything is possible. It feels like not everything is possible. And I get that's because he's trying to create this a sense of reality. For real. His- I know. Yeah. It's the trap that uh, he's built himself into with this movie is that there's only a few showy set pieces that are a bit um, surrealistic and fun, but for the most part, they just have to look like normal boring streets and hotel rooms and whatever. Um <laughs> I read this thing the other day about Paul Schrader that when he writes a film, he tries to think of something that's plaguing his mind and then he turns that into a metaphor. Mm, and that, that's evident. <laughs> and that metaphor becomes the main character, right? And, and, and that main character is usually fucked up. The main like character is really angry at the world, guy, usually. Upset, kind of incel type character. But I think it's a good technique when it comes to writing if you have something mm. you want to express to try and turn it into a metaphor and 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 interstellar is a great example of that it's like I, mm. my parents are busy with their work they're never here and quite literally that becomes a man missing his child's entire life mm. um and then what, what um, memento can i trust my own memories literally becomes I, ca- I have 30-second memory and I have to tattoo everything on my own body. I think those are very successfully told metaphors. I can't find the metaphor in this movie. I don't think I know what it's about at its core. And there's a few things that it dances around that it nearly becomes about with the family or, mm. you know, with the found family. But I don't think it ever really lands on anything. And even... The catharsis or the redemption, I don't think we feel it with Dom Cobb. I think we feel it with Cillian Murphy. Um, mm. Like, that's he gets given a big moment. Dom Cobb gets to go home, but then there's the goosebumps pan to the um, spinning top that sort of leaves the question, did he really go home or is he still in a dream state? And it's like, well, then what was the point of all of this? If the mm. whole point of it was to watch someone's redemption story or have a moment of catharsis, you didn't even really give it to us. And again, we didn't even get to see him meet his kids. He just mm. runs outside. We don't fucking see them. It's kind of interesting because there's part of me saying that moment belongs to him and not to us. But because we've been following him as the protagonist, we are aligned with him. Yeah, we're he- they're our moments too. <laughs> Yeah. He's not a real person. Well, that, that thing that people Wait say... Wait a second. What are you talking about? <laughs> Whenever people say that, like, and the camera... Don Cobb's not real? The camera cuts away because it's a private moment for him. Mm. I'm like, yeah, but he's not real. Like, where... Mm. He, he exists purely for us to watch. <laughs> so... Well, in my mind, Dom Cobb is real, dude. <laughs> in that final moment, it's been a discussion for a decade now. Right. What do you think the reality is? Do you think he's out there in the real world? Do you think he's still dreaming, baby? Like, if if someone ever says, I think he's still dreaming, I think, fuck you. I think you're still dreaming, I think you brother. need to wake the fuck up. Why would that be the movie? The movie is, oh, guess what? He's still fucking stuck in a dream, you yeah. idiot. Shut up. It's a two-hour movie. He, he's, mm-hmm. he gets home at the end. He's home, yeah. you know? Like, what, what movie would that be? What a depressing ending. Fuck it that. It would be like the Cronenberg movie or the Paul Schrader movie. <laughs> I don't think it's a Christopher Nolan movie. No. I don't think he's a nasty filmmaker. No, no, no. It, it, like, that a, would be so mean. No, it sucks. I hate that interpretation. 
I hate any interpretation like that. No, the guy is home with his fucking kids and Michael Caine's mm-hmm. there and he's got to find a new wife. And that's the sequel as he tries to, <laughs> he tries to find a new wife. <laughs> I think as well for me, it just makes sense because he no longer cares. That's about mm. his journey. He doesn't need the dream world. He's not. He knows he's not stuck in the dream world. Seeing his kids for the first time, because whenever we see them in the dream, their face never turn around. They're not freaking ours doing a 180 head loop. He finally sees their faces and he's like, yeah, I'm in my fucking reality. And yeah. also Michael Caine's here. Why would we be dreaming about my father-in-law? Yeah, exactly. If you could invent your own dream, Michael Caine wouldn't be there. But yeah, be just a bunch of babes, I guess. Yeah, exactly, dude. <laughs> That's what's crazy to me. There should be more babes like jumping around. If and this stuff movie this. got made today by me, mm. it would be way more babes. It'd be like the Man Show. It'd be fucking it- babes <laughs> bouncing around on trampolines and shit. Yeah, dude. If this was my dream. Cillian Murphy completely naked the whole time. <laughs> Everyone has Peaky Blinders hair, dude, in my dream. Yeah, everyone's got those little freaking pork pie hats on and those, like, <laughs> Greek fisherman hats. Peaky Blinders style, dude. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our awards. Yeah, we're going to give an award away to Best Character Actor. We love to give away awards where we recognize those faces that populate the dreams out there. Actors that are beloved by us that don't often get the recognition they deserve. And Christopher Nolan, one thing I really like about his cast is that he employs humongous movie stars. And this movie has a lot of movie stars working together. We've got Joseph Gordon-Levitt, for goodness sake, one of the biggest stars of all time. Song and Dance Man. Song and Dance Man. <laughs> but then you've got great character actors populating the world. Who is the first you'd love to give an Oscar away to, Cameron? Well, you put this movie on last night and you texted me within about a minute of starting it. And you mentioned one name in your message to me. And so I had my eye out for this actor. And it's a guy that I feel like we we never really get to talk about. Mm-hmm. But we should talk about more. And that is Lucas Haas. Yes, Lucas Haas, the star of Witness. The star of Witness, the star of Mars Attacks. The star of Brick by Ryan Johnson. Yeah, that was interesting actually watching it this time. I thought, oh, Lucas Haas has co-starred with uh, both Leo and uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. JGL. Yes, he's been in both of their lives. He gets a very small part in this, but it's a nice... A nice part. He's sort of the Judas of the group early on. He's a betrayer, the former architect that screws up their first heist. And uh, he doesn't really get to do a lot of big Hollywood stuff, but um, he was a big Hollywood party boy back in the 1990s, which is really interesting to you and I in particular. I think maybe... He was in Leo's gang. Yeah, it's, it's actually really... Worth researching if you're interested in <laughs> if you're interested in 1990s LA Hollywood history is that Leo around the time of maybe just before Titanic right mm. um so he was just about to pop and become the biggest movie yeah. star in the world Don's plum was about to fall upon this <laughs> earth he was uh he was a very of the moment, hot young actor about to break, and he had a group of buddies that were all best friends, and they would go around and they would drink and they would eat every night and they would party throughout Los Angeles, California, and they were a group. Well, why don't you tell everyone what they were called, Alexi? The name of the gang that featured the star of Don's Plum, Tobey Maguire, and Leonardo DiCaprio, Lucas Haas, and E from Entourage, and David Blaine. Mm-hmm. They were a group. They were called the Pussy Posse. The Pussy Posse. Yes. Um, you mentioned, And of you- course, that's what a group of 19-year-old dudes would call each other. Of course. The Pussy Posse. There's a couple of other names that you um, left off the list because there is an extended family of the Pussy mm-hmm. Posse. This uh, Jay Ferguson, who's in Mad Men and is fantastic in Mad Men, Josh Miller, Scott Bloom. Um, also, Ethan Suplee was in the Pussy Posse. Oh my lord! <laughs> Ethan Suplee was in the Pussy Posse. Yes, 
Wow. Is he the Scientologist member of the Pussy Posse? He must have represented the Scientology element. Wow. You've got to have a Scientologist in there for diversity in Hollywood. The Pussy Posse uh, gained infamy around the time of Titanic coming out because there was a possibly Hollywood Reporter um, Mm. feature article on Leo that was um, maybe, I think, to to promote Titanic. And the, it was one of those embedded articles where the journalist was like, I'm going out for a night of drinking with Leonardo DiCaprio. But it ended up just being them spending like 24 hours with the pussy posse and barely getting to talk to Leo, just being surrounded mm. by the hangers on. And they witnessed a bunch of incredibly bad behavior from all members, including Leo. And they reported it all. And, uh, and Leo's pretty much spent the last... 20 odd years trying to undo the damage of that article and kind of undo the reputation that it gave him as like a party boy. Um, He doesn't give many interviews anymore, obviously, pretty much since that one came out. And, um, I mean, he hasn't done too much to undo it. He still fucks a lot of models on yachts and stuff yeah. like that. But... I guess he's trying to save the planet to, <laughs> yeah. to, 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 as, a, as a hobby these days yeah. as well. But he's, like, repressed a lot of the articles that have tried to come out. Anytime people talk about Pussy Pussy, he doesn't want to talk about it. And then, yeah. of course, Don's Plum was that yeah. big, uh, the big controversy of the time, too which was a bunch of the members of the Pussy Posse all acted... Toby and Leo Toby and Leo in particular acted in an improvised feature film where Mm. they got to make up a lot of their own dialogue. And they're like 19 at the time. Yeah. And... uh, And they are the guys that invented the Pussy Posse. So, you know, their creativity might not be there. (laughs) And uh, Leo and Toby sued the directors Mm. and producers of Don's Plum, this film, and stopped it from ever being released. And it's kind of been an ongoing lawsuit that has never really been resolved for 20-odd years. You can buy Don's Plum on uh, the Don's Plum website. You just email the director of the film. His email Mm. is on it, and you just go, can I watch Don's Plum? And he sends you a link. I've got it. Yeah. Yeah, he sent us the link. Yeah. We've been in contact with him yeah, years we've, ago. We've talked, we've both got the link. I still haven't watched it. Yeah. You know, in Australia, you could buy it on DVD at a point in time as well. Um, when video stores were closing just recently at Film Club, um, I was there and I missed out on a copy, but my friend bought it in front of me and I was very upset that I didn't get it. Yeah, I think it got released uh, in some markets internationally, but never mm. in the States. And uh, the story goes, it was that it was uh, repressed by uh, Toby and Leo because the dialogue they improvised was very misogynistic. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a curiosity, it's out there. If you look as Huss completist, I don't think he's in it, but he probably should watch it for his vibe nonetheless. (laughs) So yeah, I'd love to give a shout out to Lucas Haas and the Pussy Posse. Oh, here's the, I found the article. It's Leo, Prince of the City, and it's in New York Magazine. Mm, um, it's, it's like an iconic article. Yeah, it's great. It's worth a read. Leo, Prince of the City. It's pretty fucking revealing about the guy. Yeah. Um, Another little character actor I'd love to give an award to today on the podcast is a member of the Petey Posse, Pete Postlethwaite, mm. one of the greats, in my opinion, of character actor stardom. Um, he was an early favorite for me because he's in a lot of great movies around the 1990s, early 2000s mm. with like In the Name of the Father. He, of course, is the priest in Romeo and Juliet. And he just has this most unique look. Mm. He is so gaunt and he looks so fried. Like, But he's got this incredible range and intensity. I just think he's one of the greats. And this was his final role. I thought uh, The Town was his final role. Oh, maybe The Town was, They would have been around the same year, right? I watched The Mm. Town for the first time recently. Um, He's fantastic in it. He's so great. It's a very small part, but he's fantastic. Mm. So scary. Yeah, and it's I, I felt quite emotional watching him die in yeah. this movie. And, you know, I think that he's such a fantastic actor. And he's just fabulous in this small role. And I would say perfectly cast. I think him and Cillian Murphy, there's something really special about casting them as father and son here. Mm. I don't quite know what it is, but I think they have a very similar intensity about them that just works wonderfully. 
They both have interesting faces. Yeah, I mean, in a different way. I think Cillian Murphy is like really beautiful, and Pete Postlethwaite really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Deeply interesting looking guy. <laughs> Let's move on to our next award. There's a special award that I'm going to give away this week. It is to a bonus feature to this movie. Fantastic. This is a bonus feature called Dreams, colon, Cinema of the Subconscious, a one-hour documentary feature on this disc directed by Rocco Bellich, but hosted by a guy who goes by the name of Regular Joe. That's how he introduces himself on this. Hey, guys, it's me, Regular Joe. Oh, you may know me as the actor Joseph Gordon-Levitt, but that's the name that I use most often, Regular Joe. That's how he introduces himself with this. What? Psycho. What do you mean? He calls himself Regular Joe? He introduced himself as Regular Joe. Oh, no. And in this documentary, it's quite interesting. He goes around, like, interviewing dream experts and stuff. And it's really, it really made me think about Joseph Gordon-Levitt a lot. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt a lot. Really made me think about Joseph Gordon-Levitt a lot because we talk about him as this interesting curiosity of a guy these days because he was trying to become a filmmaker, trying to become a big director. And this kind of made me position him as he really is the maker of this documentary. Someone else is directing it, but he's in like all these little recreations that look like very amateur films and i kind of got thinking i feel like he was trying to be christopher nolan's kind of mentee his second in command or something interesting because don john comes out a couple of years after this but he's in the christopher nolan group you know he does the next film with them with him and tom hardy they're all in the next adventure and michael kane but my cocaine my cocaine by the way <laughs> that's how i like to say his name because it makes me sound like i'm him my cocaine my cocaine and then <laughs> it's i remember he wanted to do a sandman movie do you remember that i do yeah Gaiman? yeah and i, I feel that. like he <laughs> must have wanted to and i feel like there's another alternate reality out there where he makes and directs an inception sequel <laughs> I really think there's an alternate timeline where Don John is cool and not a weird movie about jacking off to porno on the internet mm. and going to night class for some unknown subject. I don't know. That that movie perplexes me to this day. A, a very <laughs> bizarre movie and extremely strange that he made it at the height of his career. But I feel like if there's a different universe where that movie's cool and then he gets to do Inception 2. Inception 2, Arthur's Quest. <laughs> Arthur's subconscious. This time it's following Arthur and he's the main guy. And he goes into heaps of different dreams and there's so many different babes in there. Arthur's catharsis. The catharsis of Arthur's. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. That. So is that our reboot? Is it a um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt directed and written and starring sequel? I think that's it. But there's another idea I had in my head, which was, you know, I would love this movie to have a little bit more surrealism, a little bit more fun. And I really think the way that you could do this, I think there will be a sequel to Inception one day. I do think that Christopher Nolan or maybe JGL, someone <laughs> will return to this. And I think it's like one of those great things where, you know, all the exposition happened years ago that you can kind of jump into the world and explore it a little bit further. And there's so much you can do with it. But I would love to do the Inception gang versus the Nightmare King Freddy Krueger. Oh, wow. That's special. I think that's how you have to do it because this one was a heist movie. Mm. I think you should change the genre and it be like a horror movie. Like someone is haunted by something in their dreams. Someone is trying to get out there and kill them. And it should be about going into the dreams to defeat something dream to break warriors. something yeah literally dream i mean that's what dream warriors is yeah sure. wasn't there uh wasn't the original pitch for this film more in line with a horror or a thriller story yeah i think in the insomnia days of uh christopher nolan oh it is weird that he's made a movie about people sleeping in a movie about people that can't sleep yeah yeah what's next people that can sleep sometimes 
<laughs> yeah, this would be great if there's just one scene <laughs> in the movie where they're all wandering around the dream world and then Al Pacino flashes in for a second and goes, oh shit, Michael sleep. And then he just disappears <laughs> once again. <laughs> oh, it looks like I finally laid my head on that pillow. <laughs> But yeah, there was an idea for it. It began life as a um as like a horror spec or something, right? And yeah. then it kind of evolved. Well, yeah, I'd like to see more of that. I hope they don't make a sequel to it. I think that would be crazy. But but I do like the world building of this movie a lot. I love that the implications that it was developed as military technology and then it's been corrupted and gone black market. I, I find all that stuff really fun and cool. I don't want a sequel, but I can see that there is a full world there. And, Mm. you know, maybe there's an offshoot of it, Clover Paradox style, that we can uh, (laughs) see in the future. I think the thing that's stopping it from ever happening is Nolan's breakdown of the relationship between him and Warner Brothers. Mm. Mm. I think that's a reason why it could never really happen. But... And I think he's in too much of a position of power to ever have to go back to the well that, you know, other directors have to go back to their their most beloved properties. Mm. Um, but I got to say, I love this movie so much more this time. Yeah. I had such a great experience watching it. I It is not my favorite Nolan movie, but there's a lot to applaud in there. And I love the idea that the idea of sharing a dream with someone and what mm. more is there in reality than the idea that going to the movies, sitting down in a room as it darkens and being taken away on a dream and sharing it together. Inception, the movies are the shared dream. Wow. That was really beautiful. Thank you so much. I actually was quite inspired watching this movie. (laughs) (laughs) I was inspired to have a nap. A nap on the tarmac. Thank you so much for listening to uh, Total Reboot, the only podcast on the internet about movies. If you'd like to hear more from us, go to patreon.com slash totalreboot for $5 a month. You get extra pods. You get additions to our Facebook secret super group, the Cinephile Registry. And you get one kiss on the lips from either Alexi or I if you ever see us in public. Yeah, everybody gets one kiss on the lips. Hmm. And that will be as wet or as dry as you want. You control the action. (laughs) (laughs) Also on our Patreon, we just did an episode where we talked about some coming attractions, some trailers. Uh, Further down the line, we might talk about some other heist movies that are not part of this mini series. Mm -hmm. Might do like a big heist bumper episode on there soon. And also on this podcast, we do some new release reviews. I just talked about After Yang and... The Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy with a beautiful critic, Michael Sun. So check that out if you haven't already. And next time, we've had to rearrange the miniseries a little bit. Like all heist movies, there have been unexpected complications Mm -hmm. with access to some of the movies. So perhaps Set Off will be next. Perhaps Fantastic Mr. Fox will be next. But the rest of the lineup that we have for this is Le Circle Rouge. Fantastic Mr. Fox, set it off. And we're going to close things out with the classic, closing out our Al Pacino trilogy, Heat. I'm very excited for all of those. Me too, me too. And Cam, you are in Brisbane this weekend? Yes, that's true. If you are in Brisbane this weekend, I've got three shows left. Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday night. There are not many tickets left, so book now if you can. And if you can't, then uh, I guess I'll, I won't see you. Yeah. And but it would be nice to see you. It would be really nice. You can collect that kiss. Yeah, yeah. Come cash in on the kiss. <laughs> you just have to show Cameron the email that you used to sign up to the Patreon and he'll give you that kiss. There'll be a QR code. I'll scan it. I'll. It goes to a database that we've got. and uh, That his wife manages and yep. checks up on from time to time. It's totally acro- above board. She's cool with it. It's all good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of course, of course. Uh, Until next time, guys, keep sharing the dream. Keep enjoying cinema. And please, 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 please send your highest regards to Christopher Nolan, the Lord Emperor of modern cinema. See you in our dreams. (laughs) 